definitely with anxiety, it's just being able to connect with that part of you that was wounded as a child. And, and the anxiety gets worse because it's yelling at you to, for attention. You know, if you had a, a child in front of you who is three years old holding his arms up, you know, crying, would you just say, no, I got to go on the Internet right now or I got to go have a drink right now? Or No, you'd pick him up and you'd hold him. And you tell him he was okay. And that's what I mean when you find that alarm in your body. And this is one of the things that I, I kind of teach people is, where is this alarm in your body? Find it and then really pay attention to it because chances are that's the part of you that needs the healing. And you, mm. you don't get that healing by thinking about it. You, you get that healing by feeling it. You, you got he- to feel it to heal it, basically. Welcome to the Pave Your Paradise podcast. I'm Mandy Ross, international media personality, speaker, writer, life cheerleader, and coach. Each episode, I'll share a guest or an idea to help you blast through your limiting beliefs, nourish your soul, and connect with yourself to take your relationships, health, business, and life to a next level. We don't play small. We're meant for great things. We take our struggles and turn them into slam dunk successes. This is the place for you to create your best you so you can pave your personal path to paradise. Are you with me? Let's do this. Hello and welcome back to the show. If you're just tuning in for the first time, this is Save Your Paradise podcast and I am Mandy. And if you have been tuning in regularly, I just want to say a huge thank you for tuning in every single week. I feel so honored and blessed to be sharing this time with all of you guys out there listening. And I want to know how you're tuning in. Are you on a walk right now? Are you tuning in while you're driving somewhere? Are you working out? out like what are you doing take a shot send it to me on social media make sure you tag me mandy j ross and pave your paradise podcast hashtag as well and i might just send you a little gift for doing so i love seeing the behind the scenes of your life as well as sharing my own with you guys every week and i am super excited to announce that i have a patreon now a patreon account is basically a way for for you guys to be even more connected to me and the podcast and to show your love and support. And I am ready to serve you even more through my Patreon account. I'm going to be having lots of additional resources that I'll be sharing on it. And if you want to join the official Pave Your Paradise community, where you'll be receiving tons of self-growth and self-love tips, techniques, and tools for your personal development toolbox and connect further with me in live group calls and coaching plus be supporting the podcast and me to raise awareness on mental health and self-love and other amazing missions out there please visit my new page which is up at www.patreon.com slash Mandy J. Ross. I made it the same as my other social medias, so you guys would have everything the same to remember. So that is it, and I am so excited to also be connecting with you on my Patreon account. And now, I am super stoked to feature a very special guest on today's episode, Dr. Russell Kennedy, da-da-da-da, otherwise known as the Anxiety 
Anxiety MD. Now, so many of you have reached out about anxiety and mental health in particular, so I'm thrilled to bring you a leading expert on the topic today. Dr. Russell Kennedy, aka the Anxiety MD, is a part medical doctor, part brain science geek, part rebel, and part stand-up comic. No joke. His passion lies in helping people get more true feeling and less false thinking in their lives. A recovered, stressed out, burnt out medical doctor, Dr. Russ wants to show you that healing stress and anxiety has much more to do with the body than the mind. His experiences with LSD, ayahuasca, psilocybin, and MDMA have given him insights into his own anxiety and provided non-traditional ways of understanding and alleviating our worries and fears. He wants to share his insights with the world. Dr. Russ is finishing a book tentatively called the Anxiety Rx to be published in late 2019. The book combines his passion for the mind-body-spirit connection with his strong foundation and degrees in academic medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. The book is designed to show anxious, stressed-out people how to see their stress so that they don't have to be their stress. For those committed to changing their feeling state, Russ offers personal and group sessions, and he can easily be found all over social media by searching The Anxiety MD. I'll put the link to his website where you can find find everything about him in the show notes below as well. So Dr. Russ is a physician, he's a speaker, entertainer, and so much more. We met through a mutual connection. He sent me some info on what he was up to, and upon looking further into it, I knew I had to get him on the show for you guys. His alternative name, The Anxiety MD, is quite perfect for him, as he's a global leading expert on the topic of anxiety. Because of his diverse background from the medical, alternative healing, and spiritual worlds, and his own personal struggle and transformational journey with anxiety and mental health, he's full of insight and inspiration. He's someone who I completely appreciate and respect for what he's creating in this world, especially the positive impact he's having on ending the stigma around mental health and providing solutions to those who are battling it. I've implemented some of his strategies for my own anxiety and have seen a positive difference in my life, so I had to share them with y'all. I want to continue bringing on expert guests that will help you, inspire you, and empower power you and Dr. Russ is a breathing living walking example of paving your own path to paradise. In this episode we deep dive into his personal journey with anxiety, trauma and healing your pain points. We go right into the nitty-gritty of what's happening to your mind and body when you experience anxiety, techniques that you can start doing today to help you with anxiety and panic attacks, plus proactive measures you can take to help manage the stress and anxiety in your life, and also as per you usual, we chat about intimate relationships and in particular, conflict resolution and connecting deeper with your partner and so many other delicious topics. So I hope you all enjoy this interview as much as I did with Dr. Russ. Hello, Russell Kennedy. Thank you so much for joining me on Pave Your Paradise podcast. Thanks, Sandy. It's really good to talk with you. I'm really excited to have you here on the show because anxiety, which is your expertise, is something that so many people deal with. It's just such a pleasure to be able to chat about that and so much more, I'm sure, on today's episode. What was the first thing you did when you woke up this morning? I mean, I usually do the same thing every day. I usually wake up in a little bit of alarm, and I've done that for like the last, oh, I don't know, 25 years. And I always just put my hand on my chest and just basically say, you know, I've got you. And we, as we come out of the dreamland scape into sort of the real world, 
I just really just connect with myself and then I go have a pee. <laughs> Always interesting what people yeah. have to say. And I yeah. love that you started with that. Yeah, it's funny that that initial waking up, I definitely want to discuss later on sure. because something about that time of going from your dream state into reality or if I may say so myself, <laughs> this could be the dream state we're in now. I'm not you sure. <laughs> but in, neuro- in neuroscience, we actually call that the hypnagogic state. It's, 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 it's just as you're falling asleep and just as you're coming in a wakefulness. It's called the hypnagogic state. And it's a tremendously receptive part for the subcortex, for the part of the brain that we don't have direct access to most of the time. That makes so much sense. I've had mornings where I literally have woken up in exactly what you're describing. And it can sometimes be days on end because, as you know, uh, knowing each other for a little while now, having both suffered from anxiety and suffering from anxiety, there are definitely mornings when I wake up and it's almost like how you described where it's almost that like... (gasps) And you wake up and you're like, oh, okay, I need to soothe myself. (laughs) Often I see that with people when they were younger, when it wasn't safe to be safe. You know, like you have to keep your guard up all the time. And then when you're in sleep, you know, you have to let your guard down. And then it's it's just that between that letting your guard down state and then sort of coming back into vigilance again. It's, It's a real, it can be a really sharp transition it can really fire a lot of us into alarm and we'll talk all about that and what you can do about it and how you can you know heal from anxiety and stuff i've been waiting for this to talk to you for a long time and this is this is a big treat for me aside from work what gets you up in the morning well i have my dog who turned 10 years old today who's a labradoodle he's 85 pounds and he is oh happy birthday happy birthday buddha boo boo He's, uh, he's great. You know, he's been through a lot of tough times with me as far as that goes. Uh, I have two stepsons and a daughter and a granddaughter with another grandson on the way. So I've got a lot of family stuff to do. And what gets me charged is just helping people, helping people understand their minds and their bodies and how they're intimately linked and how one really affects the other and what they can immediately lower the stress in their life and start training themselves to, so they don't need a therapist. They become their own therapist. They resource themselves. You know, so I give people tools so that they learn how to resource themselves. And that's what charges me up. Mm, that's such a beautiful reason to jump out yeah. of bed in the morning. What has been the highlight of your week? The highlight of my week, I guess, is really starting to get the hang of my book. I'm writing a book right now on anxiety to, with my own journey of anxiety and how to help other people. Because I do feel that we use the wrong paradigm in trying to heal um, anxiety and, and most mental illnesses from psychiatry and from psychology. And I think we really have to go in through the body. And that's really starting to become apparent. Whereas the, the theories now where we just talk to a patient and expecting the talk to go in there and start undoing those implicit memories does, doesn't really work. So I guess it's just, you know, getting this book out there and then just reading back to myself, like this is really going to change. This is going to be a game changer. It's going to be a game changer for people. It's going to be a game changer for therapists. And, you know, and I wouldn't have found it unless I did some LSD and got a completely different view of what, what it was like to be anxious. 
And that's the thing, Russ. I mean, I completely resonate with your journey of being a human experiment. I love the fact that you put yourself out there. You really throw yourself into different healing techniques. And I'd love if you could share a bit about yourself and your background and your personal journey and story surrounding anxiety, given that you are the anxiety MD. (laughs) It would be great for forever to hear where this all initiated. Well, I was born a poor sharecropper son. And no, um, I was born in uh, Ontario. My father was mentally ill. And had schizophrenia and bipolar. So one of them's bad enough, but two of them's really bad. And growing up as a sort of a 10, 11, 12 year old, I really saw my father collapse into psychosis. And to see the person that's supposed to be looking after you start losing it. Uh, it was never violent or abusive, but just you could see that he just wasn't contacted with reality. And that was really scary for me. So I... Um, I kind of, you know, kind of withdrew into my body a little bit and then up into my mind and stayed there ever since, stayed in my mind for so long and tried to solve things from a mind-based perspective because I was really starting to develop anxiety, mostly about developing his illness because there was a heritable component to schizophrenia and bipolar. So I started being really worried that I was going to get this. So my anxiety started to creep up over the course of my, you know, mid-teens, late-teens. And I thought, okay, well, what, what can I do about this? Well, I can go to med school. I can do that and become a doctor, which is what I did. And had a lot of anxiety through med school, but still made it. And then finished med school and was still struggling quite a bit with anxiety. Became a yoga teacher at that point, And then uh, became a touring stand-up comic for about 10 years with Yuck Yucks. That was kind of fun. So in the daytime, I was doing medicine at the clinic. And the nighttime, I would go out and do sets at uh, Yuck Yucks and be a comedian. So that actually helped my anxiety. And over the course of time, I, I ran into so many people who also struggled with anxiety. And I tried so many different things. I went to India and, and lived at a temple there for a while. I tried uh, Byron Katie School for the Work. I tried LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, uh, ayahuasca. Um, read every possible book on neuroscience that I could get a hold of and just tried to educate myself and what my brain and my body was doing. And then when I, I did some, some LSD because I was basically, my back was to the wall. I just come back from India. I thought that was going to cure me. And I came back worse than I ever was. And a friend of mine who's an Ayurvedic doctor said, well, you know, we're going to have to really give you a, a different change on, on your perception here. So he gave me some LSD. And then I had the revelation on LSD that my anxiety was not in my mind at all. It was actually lodged in my body. And so I started working on both the mind and the body. And as I worked more with my body and sort of became more in tune with that, and that's what I said about this morning when I, when I first get up, the first thing I do is I put my hands on my chest and just really connect with that part of me that, you know, was 13 and petrified of losing his dad and just connecting with that. And I've realized that when we connect with our body, you know, the mind takes care of itself. If you can, if you can calm your body the mind will often take care of itself. Since then, you know, what charges me up is to sort of give this alternate profile of how to treat anxiety because I, I have it. I'm an anxiety physician and neuroscientist, and I also have the condition myself. So, you know, I, I've seen what helped 
and, and what helps superficially and what helps deeply. And my mission is to show, show people what, what you can do to really help. And I understand the frustration. I was so frustrated. I had such a, uh, such a dislike for psychiatry and psychology because they never seemed to help me. Because they're always, you know, we'd go in, we'd have an hour session, they talk about, you know, my childhood, my dad, how difficult it was, blah, 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 you know, the whole thing. And I really wasn't getting anywhere. I mean, it felt good temporarily, but until I really started dealing with this issue in my body, which was shown to me on LSD, that's when I really started to get better. And that's kind of the combination of, so now I use a combination of, you know, hardcore neuroscience and medicine and this sort of more ethereal you know, stuff that I learned on psilocybin and ayahuasca and LSD just to, you know, as a, as a frame of my perception, because I, ha if I hadn't done those psychedelics, I would never have the, the, you know, perception, the complete reversal of perception that I needed because trained as a medical doctor, we're very, very analytical. And that was getting, being so analytical was actually making my anxiety worse. And a lot of anxious people are like that. They're very, mm. very up in their heads and they try and think their way out of it. And the more thinking you do, the worse anxiety gets. But anxiety will not tell you that. Anxiety will sit in the corner and go, hey, come on over here and think some more. This will help you. And it, it just makes you worse and worse and worse. Oh, my goodness, Russ. I absolutely love it. I love everything that you said as far as just your openness to just life, but also healing. And given that your background was so one-sided in one way, being that you came from such a strong medical background, I have so much respect for the fact that you were so just open and willing to try other things. And I think a lot of times that the frustration that you're talking about, it's from that frustration when our back is so against the wall that we're finally open to trying other things that maybe we wouldn't have been open to before. Oh, absolutely. Like I'm, I, you know, I'm a pretty scaredy squirrel to start with. Right. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm very much, you know, I'm very much an alpha male for sure. Like, like I go to the gym, I do that stuff. You know, I hear, you know, I really, I was really brought up in that alpha male dogma and I had to become an alpha male. I had to become an alpha child. Because when my father got sick, I kind of, as the oldest male, got zapped up into the, into the sort of parental role of the family mm. because my father mm -hmm. couldn't do it. I was the oldest male. So I got shot up into that alpha role. So I, I'm used to being alpha. But, you know, that, 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 that constant drive of being alpha all the time uh, just wore me right down, you know. And it became yeah. a persona, too. Like, and that was the, you know, the, the stand-up comic and the yoga teacher and the doctor, like all that was a mask. It was just a shield to protect, to try and, to try and uh, show people that I had it all together. And, you know, my dad was nuts, but I'm not, and I've got all this stuff together. And really, you know, the height of my anxiety was when I had all these things going at once and it was just a mask. Like it just, it felt so good to sort of, you know, leave that sort of doctor thing behind and, 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 you know, I still hold on to it. Like I still have an ego. Like I still love the fact that I, I'm a physician and a neuroscientist. I still love that because I, you know, I was trained in that mode, but you know, for a lot of my life, it was this is com com compensatory mechanism for just feeling like I was an outcast an outsider. I didn't really feel like I connected and I had to teach mm. myself how to be socially engaged 
because I was really withdrawn as a teenager. I had very few friends. I thought I was going to become the world champion snooker player. So I spent all my time down at the pool hall. You know, I had a bit of a checkered childhood. So it, 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 it all, but I, I realized it all comes together. But my main goal, like I said, my main goal is to really help people understand what's going on in their mind and what they may be doing in therapy or doing for themselves that they believe is helping them may actually be making them worse. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think I speak for a lot of audience members out there. A lot of people who are listening, I'm sure, have had a colorful past with their parents. If not, that's totally cool. But I know many people who are listening have as well. And there's something really interesting, too, if we can dive into that parent-child relationship, because from a biological standpoint, there was the fear that was planted in you as a seed from a very young age that genetically speaking, you could become like your father. But from a psychological perspective, that's where that really innate sense of fear of overcompensating of not turning into your father that like I know for a fact I can certainly relate having a parent who had uh, mental health issues growing up as well as an addiction it was like I used that as a catapult of not going in the direction it was like it forced me to do everything I possibly could to steer me in the complete opposite direction of never having to turn out, quote unquote, like that. Is that where that seed of fear was planted in you? That is the catapult that basically turned into anxiety? Can you dive into that? Uh, I, I think that's probably a fair assessment, too, because I got on this treadmill of if, if, I'm, if I'm accomplishing and I'm, I'm moving forward and I'm holding down a job, I'm not my father because he never really could hold down a job. You know, he had a, a difficult time with relationships. And so I'm thinking, well, I'm going to do everything I can not to be him, even though I loved him. And he was, you know, when he was sane, he was wonderful. You know, he was probably the most intelligent man I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, very kind, loving, very athletic, you know, like everything a guy, like a boy would want in a dad, and minus the schizophrenia part. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so for me, it was like, for, for me, overachieving was my way of proving I wasn't him. Mm. Right. But it was just such a treadmill. It's such a treadmill, you know, and what you resist persists, like what you what you you try to to sort of push away from you gradually become. And and as I tried to become more not him, I actually became more like him because I was driving myself. It's like that neuroticism, the neuroticism around it and like the obsession around it literally was driving you crazy. Yep. But I also know it's the people that that have the traumas you know, in childhood and that kind of stuff. Like we're kind of the people that change the world. Totally. You know, like the people with the, with the steady attachment figures and the parents and then, you know, it's the people that have the trauma. Like, but it's a, you know, it's a double-edged sword too. If you have too much trauma, then you're dysfunctional and then you, you know, and, and it's not your fault. It's just that you just weren't able to be able to kind of rise above the trauma. And there's so, you know, I know so many people that have had so much more trauma than I did, you know, growing up. But there is that kind of sweet spot between having a fair amount of trauma in your life and then overcoming it and then saying, hey, you other people, this is what happened to me. If this is what's happening to you, this is what I did about it. And this is what really made a difference. And the fact that, you know, I could use my physician background and my physician knowing the brain and how the brain works and 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 how, and how we grow up into attachment or lack thereof, you know, like all these things kind of come together and I'm able to kind of put them all together and and just sort of say, here, 
this is probably what's happening with you. If someone was to come to you as a leading expert on anxiety and say, Dr. Russ, I honestly have no idea where this stems from within me. What would you say to them? Like they know that they are experiencing the symptoms of, you know, what anxiety is, but they don't know where it came from and like what's really going on inside of them. How would you help them? One question. One question I ask people that I, I can't quite pin down. If you had a magic wand and you could change one thing and only one thing about your life, what would it be? And that 99 times out of 100. Tell, so what would that be for you, man? If you had a magic wand right now, if I gave you a magic wand and you could change one thing about your past, what would it be? Putting the interviewer on the spot. <laughs> well, you don't actually, you know, you don't, we can, we can actually move forward. You know, I can tell you what it would be for me. You know, you don't have to say what it is for you, but what it would be for me was my dad's illness. Yeah. I, I, would, I would rather have, you know, I would go back and, you know, I would give everything up, the whole MD, the whole shebang, uh, if I could have had a healthy dad. So that tells me that that is probably the source of my anxiety. And I can pretty much guarantee you that that's where it is. But when people don't know, you know, all anxiety is separation anxiety. And almost always it occurs in childhood, unless it's PTSD, which is a different kind of kettle of fish altogether. But that's usually the question that I'll ask people. But I often, but I'll often do like a, like a reading on people, you know, Mm. since I, I left medicine five years ago, my, my intuition has gone up like through the roof. So often I can see into people and I could do this when I was a doctor too. I could come in, if a patient came in to see me, I could tell if they had a physical illness or a mental illness. It was just like a gift that I had. But the problem with that is that I would read everyone as they came in the door. And sometimes I'd see 30, 40, 50 people in a day at one of the walk-in clinics. And it was just, it just drained me. Like it was just exhausting. And that's one of the reasons I burned out. Totally. So just coming back, it's, it's, it's finding out, you know, where that, where the crux of that is. And then finding that in your body. And then we also need to find out the story that you tell about it too. Because the story that you tell about your parent is how you're going to remember your parent. And, you know, if you tell your, you know, the story about, your, oh, well, my mother was, you know, cold and distant, and that's the story that you tell yourself and to other people, those are the only memories you're going to curate. That's, those are the only memories you're going to recall because that's the ones consistent with your, with your narrative. Now, so you need both. We need to connect with the body as well. I'm not just saying this kind of, you know, spiritual, it's all the body, you know, that's what fix everything. No. You need, the, you need the mind as well. But what we're doing in this society is we're going through, you know, 90% is talk therapy. And maybe there's a leading edge, you know, people, 10%, not so much the medical doctors, but the psychologists are kind of catching on to, hey, where does this, where does this kind of lock into people's bodies? And, and can we use that as a way of connecting with people? Can we use their body to kind of heal their mind in a way? And that's going to be where psychotherapy goes in the next 10 years. That and psychedelics. Those are the two things that are going to change um, psychotherapy in the next 10 years. It's psychedelics and, you know, getting people into their body. A more somatic focus or a body focus in psychotherapy. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me given, and no, no bias, of course, that you and I have a background in mind, body, soul work. But really, it's yep. that integration of all three, I think, that is more and more becoming mainstream because people are realizing that 
you can't address one and and ignore the others. That's not a full treatment for healing. It's interesting too, not that again, I always say this because I've done a podcast on psychedelics and plant medicine. It was very interesting because we're talking about the child and parent trauma in general from an early life. Mine happens to be as well uh, to do with what you're talking about as far as having a parent with a mental illness and, and an addiction in my case. And it was interesting because when I have experimented with plant medicine, it usually ends up going back to my childhood and it has something to do with that parent. So it's, it, it's so interesting how it's all so correlated and it isn't until you're willing to seek out different healing methodologies that everything always stems back to that trauma, like everything. Yeah. And everything becomes a coping mechanism. And one of the, th- one of the, the definitions of a neurosis is to a coping mechanism that works that you keep riding till the wheels fall off. Like anxiety is a coping mechanism for a lot of people. Being hypervigilant, being you know constantly warning, what ifs, worst, what worst case scenarios, creating those in your mind in a way is a coping strategy. And then if I'm going to take that coping strategy away from you by helping you alleviate anxiety in your life, it's going to be seen by your unconscious mind as a threat because on some level people believe, and I'm the same way, that my, my vigilance, my constant worrying is protecting me. When I feel like the, the worry is protecting me, it's going to be really hard to get rid of something that you believe is protecting you. So what I do with my clients, patients, whatever you want to call them, is I give them another place to go, which is typically in the body, which is typically a place of safety, which is connecting, you know, connected. I would, you know, with you, I would get you to go back to a, a point in your childhood with your dad that was really painful for you and then have you talk to the to, to little Mandy and say, you know, I know this is really painful. I, I may, I'm making this up. I know it's really painful to see dad kind of go off the rails and get into rages and all that kind of stuff. You know, how are you feeling about that? And then have little Mandy talk back to you. And I know this sounds woo. And for, for a medical doctor, sometimes I want to have a seizure when I start talking about this, <laughs> but it, it does actually go in there because unless you affect the underlying implicit memory programs that are that are that are feeding this neurosis you're not gonna you're not gonna fix it you know if 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 you're in a floodplain you know making more sandbags will help but the best thing to do is build a better dam so it's 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 building a better dam going at the source of the problem and sort of alleviating it from there from a body-based perspective and that's what i found on lsd yeah so what is actually going on when people have anxiety like what is really happening from a physical, but also a mental and an emotional standpoint? Like what's really happening in our bodies? Because anxiety as well, I just think the term itself is thrown out there so often and people just kind of use it as for people who either are experiencing it, they know firsthand the feeling of it, but what's right. really going on in your body when you have actual anxiety? This is my kind of theory of what happens with anxiety. Let's say for sake of argument, when you're a child, you have a cup in your brain and that cup can hold a cup's worth of trauma. Now, say you pour in two cups of trauma to that child's brain. The first cup will get held by the cup and then the second cup will spill over because it's too much for their brain, their little brain to handle. So what happens with that excess negative traumatic energy, it gets stored in the body. And it resonates from that place in the body from that point on. 
So for me, it's spilled out into sort of my solar plexus area. So that creates um, a sympathetic, the autonomic nervous system, the two wings, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic, a sympathetic fight or flight type response in that area where that trauma is now stored in my body. So the alarm goes off in my body and my brain just being a compulsive, meaning-making, make-sense machine says, hey, something's going on in our body that is suggesting that we're under threat. Mm. And then it looks around and it looks around and says, where's the threat? Well, I'm sitting here in my office right now looking around at my shirts and my other computer and stuff. There's no real threat. So what your mind does is it makes one up. Because ah. it has to be consistent with how your body feels. And then when your mind makes up a threat, like, oh, my God, you know, maybe my dog's going to have maybe, you know, Buddha's 10 now. You know, he may, he may not last a lot longer because he's a bigger dog. So that creates a certain amount of, you know, anxious thoughts in my mind, which, of course, because the body can't tell the difference between a thought and something that's actually happening, that alarm gets reignited. And as the alarm gets reignited, the mind makes a corresponding worse thought that goes along with the alarm in the body. So the alarm in the body activates these thoughts of the mind and the thoughts of the mind activate the alarm in the body. So it starts this cycle and it's kind of like we're biting our own tails. Like, mm. we, you know, it, like it hurts. So we bite our own tails by making the alarm worse, which makes the anxious thoughts worse, which makes the alarm worse. So that's how people get locked into chronic anxiety. Does that explain then why, for example, you said yours is locked in your solar plexus or for people who yeah. aren't familiar with that term, it's basically right above the belly button area. So that's kind of like where your gut, quote unquote, you know, when you have a gut reaction. So for someone yeah. like you, when that snowball effect of stress in the mind starts happening, do you physically start feeling sick to your stomach or do you feel kind of like gut wrenching? But for say for somebody else, maybe it got locked and there's this trauma that's trapped in, say, their heart area. And hence, maybe their heart starts literally hurting. Is that possible? Absolutely. And throat, you know, throat yes. stuff too. When you, when you, if it gets, you know, I've seen people with anxiety in their throat. And almost always it's because they can't say something to a parent. That's when I see uh... people with anxiety that's in the throat, like it's kind of like, you know, fifth chakra. And again, you know, this whole medical thing, like uh, whenever I talk talking about chakras, it's like, oh, start to start to sort of shiver a little bit but you know fifth chakra like it's 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 in your throat like if you if it if you get pain in your throat or pressure in your throat it's probably because you're not saying something that you need to say you're and not speaking up it, and that tra yeah and that traps the energy so usually when i get people i call it find your alarm so find your alarm when you're really anxious and upset you know without sort of focusing so much on your brain and your mind so where am i feeling this in my body and almost always it's somewhere between your chin and your pubic bone. Usually it's almost always in the midline. I have had people say they had it in their knee or they had it in their face. But typically it's almost always center of the body. And, mm. and there's, they can localize it. Like when I was on LSD or I was coming off LSD, I, I saw this sort of purple, crystalline, oval shape, sharp, oval shape sort of mass that felt like a pressure and an ache at the same time. Just, yeah, just to the right of my solar plexus. So just where my ribs meet, just below where my ribs meet in the front there at the, at the lower end of my sternum. And I still get it to this day. Like when I wake up in the morning and I feel that alarm, that's where I feel it. And it never changes. And it's always in the same place. And that's why I put my hand on it. And I go, hey, 
because I think that alarm is essentially 13 year old me watching my dad being hauled away in an ambulance to the mental hospital, the psychiatric intensive care, which is a horrible mm-hmm. place by the way. And, mm-hmm. and, and it just keeps, and, and it just revives. Now, I have the choice at that point because I know, I know my mind is going to start, you know, when I, when the alarm starts coming up in my body, I know my mind is going to come along with all these horrible thoughts. I know it's going to be, oh, the book's going to flop. You know, you're never going to get things going. Like all this kind of stuff comes up and it's like, I know mind, I know what you're going to do. And when I wait for it and I see it that way, it's so much easier to just kind of go, yeah, okay. But if I can sit, if I look at those thoughts without awareness and consider them true, then of course the whole alarm anxiety cycle is going to start again. So the whole trick for me is being able to separate that sense of alarm that's in the body and the thoughts. They, they want to be linked, but mm-hmm. consciously, when you come into conscious awareness and you can see, okay, I feel this alarm in my system right now. And some people will feel it in their throat, pubic bone, belly button, wherever you feel it just realize that what that's going to try and do is it's going to try and fire up the thoughts of your mind because your mind wants to make sense of what's going on in your body. And if your body is feeling uncomfortable, your mind is going to give you thoughts that are completely consistent with that discomfort in the body. So it's not going to come up with stories about kittens, cookies, and picnics. You know, it's going to come up with stories about things that you're worried about. And typically it takes, you know, what it does is it takes your past and then it tosses it into your future and it makes it look real. And that's the whole thing about anxious thoughts. They're always about the future. It, it could be five minutes from now. It could be five years from now. But it's always, they're always about the future. So if you pull yourself into the moment and you say, am I safe in this moment? Like, am I safe? I know I'm feeling alarm in my body. But am I actually safe in this? And this is what I do when you ask me first thing. When I, I sit there, I put my hand over that alarm and I go, are you safe at this moment? Like, are you literally lying in a warm bed safe? And it's like, well, yeah, it's like, okay, that's all you really need right now. Am I safe in this moment? And when I do that with my patients, sometimes it's the first time they've allowed themselves to feel safe, even if it's just for five Mm. seconds. Oh, that is so beautiful to hear Russ. And I say that as well from personal experience, because when we're able to bring ourselves back into present moment, and this is, again, coming from someone, aka myself, who has a lot of anxious thoughts over all different scenarios. And when I feel that creeping up, I also go to that present moment awareness. And there's so much freedom is the word I love to use. But I love that you said safety. And I think they are one and the same in this scenario. The, the freedom lies in feeling safe as you said, sometimes for the first time and being able to just be aware that you're here, you're fully okay. And you don't have to go into that snowball effect. It's that awareness of the the thoughts. Absolutely. Because here's the best thing you can do when you, when you start overthinking is go into sensation, you know, and that's why I put my hand on my chest. Sometimes I'll rub my hands together. I don't know if you know that little yoga thing where you rub your hands together really fast and then you put the palms over your eyes. Mm, yeah. You know, it just heats up. It's like, it's a real, I do the same thing with that area of my chest and, and there's some, or just putting my fingertips together. If I, if I'm at the grocery store, you don't want to be sort of, you know, rubbing your hands together and putting them over your eyes. You look like a bit of a weirdo. 
But uh, <laughs> I would probably you know, be that one person yeah. who actually would. Mandy, you probably I'll be, would. I'll be the, I'm the I've weirdo in aisle photos. four. <laughs> I've seen your Instagram photos, and I bet you would do that. You would probably. And I bet I get some people actually on board to try it themselves in the grocery yeah. aisle too. I'm, I'm sure you would. <laughs> I'm sure you would. But getting into sensation. Uh, here's the great thing about getting into sensation, right? So your brain. Let's just say your brain is 100% of these negative thoughts. Like it's, it's just, mm-hmm. they're just crawling like cockroaches all over your mind. Now let's go completely in a sensation or as completely in a sensation as you can say, you know, putting your hands together or putting your hands on your chest or rubbing your thighs or clapping or, or singing or breathing or focusing on your breathing. So now your brain is maybe 50% devoted in the sensation but still 50% of the thoughts. But what you've done is you still, you've dropped a hundred percent of those negative thoughts down to 50. And once you drop those thoughts down to 50, then you're kind of like, then you can see them as thoughts. When the thoughts are a hundred percent, you don't even see them as thoughts. You just see them as you, and it takes you over. So getting Mm. the sensation is probably the best thing. One of my favorite little sayings that I made up is you can't beat thoughts on their own turf. You cannot, you cannot go in there. You cannot argue with anxiety because it will always beat you down. Wow. So I love things. that. You have to go out of your body first, out of your mind first, you know, cause people say like, get, I, got, I need to get out of my head. I need to get out of my head. Well, how do you do that? Well, people think, well, I'll think about something else. It's like, no, you're still in your head. When you're thinking about something else, you're still in your head. You got to get into your body. You got to get into the sensation of your body first or your breath. Your breath is brilliant for this too. But just yeah. get out of your head. And then, you know, it's like having an argument with your, you know, your partner. It's like you don't want to sit there and keep screaming at them because chances are things aren't going to go well. But if you both decide, hey, you know, let's go for separate walks, come back in an hour. Chances are you're like, you know what? I'm sorry. Yeah, I am too. But if you keep at it, if you keep at your thoughts, if you keep, you know, hammering away thinking your thoughts are going to help you, they're just going to make you worse. And here's the worst part. Here's the worst part is your thoughts are going to try and tell you. They sit in the corner. It's like, no, more thinking is good. More thinking is good. Let's just do more thinking. I can think my way out of this. And you can't think your way out of a feeling problem. Oh, you cannot think your way out of a feeling problem. Russ, that is brilliant. Brilliant. Because it's so true. (laughs) And it's so funny because over the course of my life, and I know for so many people that I've either coached myself or who also are on a very profound healing journey or other people who are practitioners, getting out of your body, things like physical activity. When I really think and boil it down to the bare basics of that, I find it almost impossible to be fully vested in a workout and be having copious amounts of anxiety do anxious thoughts come up a hundred percent i have anxiety or anxious thoughts that come up all the time during workouts sometimes that actually does happen for me but overall i find that when i move my body such as when i'm dancing when i'm doing a hitch workout when i'm even practicing yoga and doing flow and vinyasa i find it very difficult to stay stuck in that anxious feeling yeah yeah because you know your your mind and body are together at that point so one of the things that i love to recommend to people is matching breath and movement at the same time so mm-hmm. y- yoga i see a lot of yoga like power yoga and that kind of thing too and yeah it's a great workout and that kind of thing but if you really want to match your mind and your body match your movement with your breath 
because if mm-hmm. you match, like that's why Tai Chi is so good. That's why Qigong is so good, you know, oh, because it matches it. your movement with your breath. And then that brings your mind and body into alignment. And then you start dropping the alarm. You start dropping the thoughts. And then you can actually see things so much clearer. So even, you know, even sitting in, you know, lying in your bed, if you're petrified in your bed, just doing movement with your fingers and your breath at the same time. You know, there's a little thing called box breathing where you mm-hmm. sort of you draw a box. Have you heard of, have you heard of box breathing yeah. before? Yeah. Yeah. Where you just draw a box as you, you know, you raise your finger straight up as you inhale and exhale as you draw your finger across and then down to make the other side of the box and then across to meet the original point of the box. And it really you know, that's one of those things that combines your somatosensory cortex in your brain with your breath, your body and your mind have to link up because you're mm-hmm. consciously doing that. But they, when you're in anxiety, anxiety breathes you like it's breathing for you to try and keep itself going. So you'll you'll get these, you know, sort of shallow, shallow kind of breathing. And as you breathe that way, anxiety it sends a message up to your brain through the vagus nerve like, hey, there's something going on. That, that's really stressful what is it and of course your mind goes crazy again so it's a it's a matter of matching your your body to your mind and the best way i, I know to do that is matching your breath with your movement so if someone was out and yep. they start feeling anxiety come on to them what mm-hmm. would be a go-to that they could literally do right now to calm themselves down yeah well, what I usually do is it's, it's, a, it's a yoga mudra called Suri Rava Mudra, which is tip of your thumb, tip of your fourth finger. You can use, I use both hands. Some people just use one. It's supposed to join the mind and the body together. And then if you imagine just breathing through, like it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a crazy mind idea, but it's like breathing through your hands. Like if you were going to breathe. Give me the visualization. Because I think there's so the, a lot of visual people out there. So what would the yeah. visualization, the visualization aspect of that be? Would be that, that you would you would have air around your hands, and then you would be breathing in the the air would come in through your hands, through your arms, and into your lungs, and then out through your arms, through your hands, and then you would just do that, and you could do that anywhere. Like you don't have to raise suspicion about what you're doing, but fourth finger and thumb together. And even if you want to rub those fingertips together, because again, you know, getting that somatosensory cortex of the brain, you know, involved is something that takes energy away from thought, takes away, it takes away energy from the neocortex, which is the part that's creating all these, you know, horrible worries for you. So the more you can get into sensation, even rubbing your fingertips together, you know, finding some breath technique that works for you, those are the best things to do. You know, and, and there's no one size fits all. So it, it's just mm-hmm. finding a real breath technique that works for you. And like I said, the autonomic nervous system is really important. The sympathetic and parasympathetic fight or flight accelerator, parasympathetic break, you know, so and it's a lead horse system. So whatever the lead horse is doing, the rest of the system will follow. So if you're, the lead horse is breathing and you start controlling your breathing, and you start feeling into your fingertips, and you start matching your breathing with your movement, then you start connecting your body and your mind together. And anxiety and panic attacks are fundamentally when your mind and your body get disconnected. And it's a way the the body starts to panic, and, and it's telling you, hey, we need our mind and our body back together. But it doesn't tell you in a way you can understand it. It's a way that I'm telling you how to do it is get your mind and your body back together. And that's the best way to alleviate a panic attack is bringing your mind and body back together. I want to help people out there with panic attacks. Okay. 
So, and I've had them. So I, I know what they're like. And I still get them every once in a while. So here it is. Panic attacks get worse because we think, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I can't have a panic attack here. This is a store. What if I pass out? It's on a bus. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't deal. I can't deal. I can't deal. And the more you push that energy back, the more it's like you're pushing the energy like water behind a dam. So if you push it and push it and push it and push it, eventually it's just going to overflow the dam and then it's going to explode. So what happens with me is I start feeling this tenseness in my gut. Um, Sometimes I get this sort of funny taste in the back of my throat and I know that I'm about to have a panic attack. What I do is I take control of this by saying, okay, okay, fucker, let's go, bring it on. I don't say it out loud, you know, at, at, at the pool or anything like that, but I say, okay, let's go. Like make this, if you're going to give me a panic attack, give me the best damn panic attack you've ever had. Like I want to, I want to experience this in all its glory. Like, let's go. So it does two things. One is you're in control now of the energy. Like the panic attack is no longer in control and you're not resisting it anymore. So you're not allowing it to build and build and build and build and build. That's what gets people is the build and build and build and build. I can't do this. I can't have, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then boom, you know, you have no choice but to experience the full aspect of the panic attack. And then we go into victim mode in panic attacks, which makes it way, way, way worse. So if you get out of victim mode, if you say, bring it on, you know, open up your shoulders, pull back your shoulders, surrender, but, but at the same time say, okay, let's go, bring it on. Let's go. Because yes. then you're taking control of it. Panic attacks thrive on the fact that you're a victim. Mm. They thrive on the fact that they have control. But if you take control away from that panic attack, so now I just enjoy the rush. You know, and I can tell and it, it's a great way of, of seeing how my mind compulsively wants to make a negative story out of that, because typically what happens with panic attacks with my patients is the first two panic attacks or so that they have, they just feel like, you know, they'll come in and see me and they, you know, I had this weird feeling, you know, I was, you know, getting my pictures taken and uh, I had this just weird feeling in my chest and, and just I flushed, my body got flushed and you know, I just, my hands were tingling and it just felt really uncomfortable. And, uh, and then they'll, and then they'll have another one and then they'll have one more, but the, the third one, they'll go, Oh, I wonder if this is a heart attack. I wonder if this is, I wonder if this is like, uh, uh, like something that's going to really hurt me or kill me. Now, as soon mm-hmm. as they have that thought, then the loop gets, then the loop gets completed. So the alarm in the body is flowing and initially the brain doesn't know what the hell to do with it. But as soon as you give it a label that makes sense, you know, like I could be having a heart attack, I could be having a stroke, then the, the loop is completed. Now you're in a runaway train. Now the panic attack just explodes on you because not only is your body alarmed, now your mind is alarmed too. And you don't have the rational ability in your neocortex, your brain, to be able to stop it. So I'm saying when it starts, because once it, once it blows up, it's really hard to be rational. Because mm-hmm. panic attacks were designed, I mean, this is a theory, panic attacks were designed that all of a sudden, you know, you come around a corner and there's a leopard there that's going to, you know, try and eat you. I mean, panic attack, this is, I think, the origin of panic attack way back in our, in our physiology was we need everything we have right now or we're going to die. So then, mm. you just, then you just run, right? So it gives you this rush of energy. And then if you don't know what to do with it, of course, then you start making up stories about it. And it's the stories that actually kill you now. So I have a story in panic attack that I'm really going to enjoy this. And I do. 
And I really do. And now I do get, you know, the, the, I, I, I do see the thoughts knocking on my brain. Like, this is horrible. This is horrible. When this is going to end? You're always getting me, you know, but now I'm just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Bring it on. Let's go. Let's, let's do it. And I'm going to enjoy the rush because, and that has really put me in a position with that panic attack. I actually enjoy panic attacks now. It sounds psycho, but I do. When I get them, it's like, oh, okay, here's my opportunity to really let this thing go. And, and it works and it discharges a lot of energy. I can feel that energy of you making peace with the fact that they're just going to be a part of your life, but you have figured out a solution for yourself. And I would imagine that it's taken you many years to get to that state. For people out there who are listening, who are like, I get panic attacks. I can't even imagine my life turning into what you're describing now as having a solution quote unquote for when they start coming on what are things that people can just start with to build up to being able to be in that kind of state to actually deal with and handle when their panic attacks start can you give me some tangible things that maybe they could practice or do in order to develop that kind of resilience resilience. yeah yeah it is resilience but like i mean you're not fully you're still embracing the fact that you're going to have them. Right. So it's not like you're, you know, you're not completely oblivious to the fact that they're going to happen, but that resilience towards making peace with them in the way that you have, what are some of the tangible things that people out there can start doing today in order to develop that kind of level of comfort with them? Okay. Well, there's the short answer and the long answer. The short answer is start developing a breath practice of some kind, like Qigong, Tai Chi, whatever, something that matches your brain and your body together. Now, panic attack, the long answer is deal with your childhood trauma. That's mm. the long answer because it's, it's, it's the disconnection from your mind and your body, that energy that just, that's, that's, that's there that senses this ultimate disconnect between your mind and your body that's what's exploding on you. And the patients that mm-hmm. I know that get panic attacks almost always have some kind of huge decision in their life that reminds them of, you know, something that they had to face when they were younger. So, you know, I've got one woman who's, you know, should I divorce my husband? They don't seem to get along. They've been in therapy. It doesn't seem to work. And then every once in a while, they'll go on a holiday and seem like it's okay. So for, you know, four weeks out of a year, they get along fairly well and the other 48, not so well. So she's in this, like, should I stay? Should I go? You know, I can't quite, but it comes back to, you know, her father because her father would come and go and she was afraid of being abandoned. So once we started looking at that underlying problem of her sense of abandonment, then a lot of that, should I stay? Should I go left? And she started projecting a different energy towards him. Now, the relationship isn't perfect by any means at all, but they're certainly, you know, getting along, enjoying each other, having sex that, you know, you know, they, they stopped having sex for, you know, three years, you know. So it's one of those things where your, your childhood wounding is basically what's charging up your panic attack. And the thing we have a little saying in therapy, it's not about what it's about. So when someone comes in and says, my wife is driving me crazy. Yeah. So my, you know, it's kind of my wife is driving me crazy or my husband is driving me crazy. It's not your wife or your husband. It's not what's happening now. It's basically 99 times out of 100. I can track back the same scenario 
to what happened when they were a child. Something that their partner or someone in their life is doing is triggering something within them that happened in their life in childhood. Virtually always. Virtually always. Yeah. It's not about your husband. It's not about, it's not about someone that you met as an adult that's, that's driving you nuts. It's an issue that you had when you were a child. It's driving. Wow, you. that's like some straight up truth, juice. Well, People, Freud, you need to right? take. You need to take. Oh, I love Freud. You need to take this shot of truth, juice. I love you, Pave Your Paradise podcast audience. But this is the truth, juice, that Doctor Russ is dishing to you and serving to you straight up today. That I really think you need to take a shot of. I'm different. I'm not for everybody. But you know, I, no. had, a, I, had, a, I had a patient. I had a patient, <laughs> and I'll call her Janet. And uh, Janet was beautiful. Like she had just and a nice personality and just very caring and giving. Um, but her father was an alcoholic who did abuse her. And, she, you know, she would attract men because she was so attractive, but she would only pick the ones that were alcoholics, right? She had all these guys that were really solid guys that would, you know. And so she came in and she said to me, oh, I met this guy. He's great. He's, you know, he's a lawyer. He does this. He does this. He does this. And I said, is he an alcoholic? And she goes, yeah, but he's been sober for a week. It's like, yeah, okay. You know, so we take, you know, as human beings, we, equ we equate familiarity in childhood mm. with security, right? So Janet, her father being an alcoholic was, was familiar to her. So she equated that with security. So as she got older, she started looking for people that would fulfill that perceived security that she didn't really have as a child. So Freud called that the repetition compulsion. The fact that you subconsciously attract a mate that reminds you of that parental figure that was in your life growing up. Yeah, and then you go into therapy going, my husband's driving me crazy, right? What do you wish you'd known when you first started out? You can allow that question to morph into whatever you want it to. What's the first thing that comes from your gut? Uh, first thing that comes, first thing, the, what I would wished I would have known as a physician starting was that most illnesses had an emotional root and I was treating the physical part of an emotional illness. And therefore my frustration was that I was chasing my tail, you know, treating the wrong thing. That's mm. that, as a physician, that would be it. And just knowing that a lot of healing was my, relationship with my patients because I was very you know kind and open as you can tell like I'm, I'm a pretty open person with my patients so and that's what that's where the healing comes from from the connection now we're trained as physicians to be these scientific objective observers you know and that is not something that's going to help heal people if most of illnesses are emotional and these people need emotional connection and you're being this dispassionate you know conscientious observer writing out prescriptions that's really not going to heal people. So it is one of those things that I had a crisis of conscience and I, I eventually had to leave medicine because I was just, uh, and I'm not anti-pharmaceutical. I mean, I think some pharmaceuticals, there's some brilliant pharmaceuticals out there, but they're overprescribed. You know, one of my favorite sayings is when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you're mm -hmm. trained and we are trained in, in, in medicine to use, you know, pharmaceuticals, that's, that's kind of our go-to. So we will look for the conditions and, and, and preferentially see, and I put see in quotation marks, those conditions so that we can prescribe the medication. And we don't get any kickbacks from the pharmaceutical companies. In the States, they were giving doctors computers and trips and all that kind of stuff. In Canada, you know, 
we might get a dinner or maybe a round of golf. And even then, that was in the 90s. Like everything from 2000 on, I didn't take any money at all from pharmaceutical companies. But they couldn't in Canada. It was so tightly restricted in Canada that they couldn't. Now, I, I know I went off there, but my whole thing was there are some good pharmaceuticals out there. You know, there's not, you know, it's not this all, you have to do everything holistic or you have to do everything with a medication. There's a great way of sort of, you know, allowing things to kind of just holistically flow together. You know, I have people that are on medication and I have people that I think, hey, you know what? I don't think medication is probably the right thing for you because one of the things that I used to have a problem with with antidepressants was not so much when they didn't work, but when they did, because when they did work, a lot of the times people did not ever want to go back into their, the root cause of their problems that you, you, you don't want to go back into the fact that your, you know, your brother used to physically assault you when you were 13 till you're 14 or 15, you know, you don't want to go back and you'd rather take a medication that sort of kind of numbs you to it, numbs it. rather yeah. than deal it. Now there are people that have severe, you know, emotional traumas and, and they need the medication, you know, they, they, and take it, you know, I'm not shaming it. Definitely. But Definitely. I'm just saying that it's so overprescribed. And the other thing I like saying is, you know, don't go to the hardware store looking for peanut butter because don't go to the, your medical doctor <laughs> thinking you're going to get psychotherapy because yes. we're not trained in that. We are, I, yeah. I am, but most doctors are not trained in psychotherapy and it's, it's sad, you know, cause most people go to their family doctors for help and usually they'll get a prescription. And, yes. you know, because we only have totally. seven to 10 minutes with a patient and that's really, and they, and doctors want to help. It's not like they, so that's basically their go-to. I think we're in a day and age where there is so much information available out there. And by all means, I'm not saying Google your own stuff, but I think it's really as a patient, it's so important to also be aware of just self-awareness in general, just as a society, we need to cultivate more self-awareness so that we are not relying on one person to be the be all and end all. And part of that happens from within. And that's only healing that you can have someone else tell you what to do, but that healing journey is going to happen from within inevitably. So I think that's important to also be proactive in your own healing approach as opposed to relying on external people in your world to give you those diagnoses that more than likely you probably already know you have. Yeah. And it's the other thing too, is like, you know, the old model is come to me, I'm the physician. You're basically, you know, you're uninformed or whatever. I, I will, you know, I'm the paternal figure here. I will fix you. Now that, you know, disempowers patients. You know, it, it essentially makes them victims in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, find the right medical care for you. You know, I, I really, I really do think that there's a, a great combination of allopathic medicine and, and naturopathic medicine and chiropractic and, you know, every, everything has something to offer and each field tends to sort of fire arrows at the other. And you had Nima, my, my buddy Nima on the, on the show, like a, a few uh, podcasts ago, that kind of stuff. And Nima and I talk every day and we, you know, we have little, you know, spats back and forth about chiropractic and, and medicine and, you know, and, and it's fun, you know, we, we, we go back and back because he's back and forth because he's a, He's a chiropractor. I'm an MD, and then we do a lot of work together. Uh, but it's 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 amazing how well that we have sort of learned how to flow together with the two kind of very different mindsets towards healing. Going into your daily habits, I'm very curious. 
what are some of the daily habits that you swear by for your success? And what does your morning routine specifically look like? So breath and body for one, like focusing on my breath, savoring my breath is a little thing that I do every day called savor your breath. So no matter how anxious I am, no matter how off I am that particular day, I always just savor my breath and just really take it in and really love how it feels. I had asthma when I was a kid, so I know what it feels like not to be able to breathe. So I can really relish that feeling of breath. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that I do, breath and movement together. Meditation, I'm kind of hit and miss on, you know, like I can pretty much tell you uh, how my life is going by if I'm meditating. If I'm meditating, my life isn't probably going all that way. I'm just <laughs> oh, being I hear here. you on that. No, Dr. Russ, I, I so this. feel you on that yeah. one. And I am a meditation teacher. Yeah. So I, yeah. I totally get you in that yeah. kind of straying and then yeah. coming back. Same with my journal. <laughs> Same with my journal. If, thing, if shit's going well, I won't write in that thing for like six weeks. And, but as soon as it starts to go bad again, it's like I start making, you know, I start making journal entries and that kind of stuff too. So, yeah, but I, I do, I do like that. And I do, um, I play guitar. I have a 15 year old stepson who's a, a guitar maniac. We have eight guitars in the house. So uh, he's really gotten into it and I've gotten into it a lot more. And I find music, I find the, um, the vibration, you know, we're all energy, we're all vibration. So I find the vibration and creating my own vibration is really, really important for me to kind of just, you know, I'll go in and turn up the amp to, you know, turn it up to 11, you know, not, and, uh, and I just, I just go in there and just crank it away. And, and there's just something about playing your own music and uh, it just allows the emotion to come through you. And I have mm. a, probably a two week process where I, I go into tears. The thing that puts me into tears, I watch YouTube videos of sad dog rescues and uh, uh, I can't watch dogs that are, 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 that it doesn't wind up well for them. But what I'll do about every two weeks is I'll go in and I'll watch a dog who is being rescued And that brings me to tears because tears are the brain's natural way of healing trauma. That's fascinating. So you actually put yourself in a scenario that forces the emotion and the tears out of yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if more men did that, I think we'd be, I think we'd be in a lot better shape as a, as a, you know, society. For sure. This is one thing I have not talked about on the podcast with anyone so far. Sorry, it's just kind of hitting me because I do the same thing in my own way. I find satisfaction sometimes out of listening to songs that I know are going to trigger me to tears. Yeah. Spotify has a has a playlist that says crying songs. You know? Oh, so, yeah, I wasn't so okay. Okay, listeners, I was not even aware go. of this. Go get yourself some Spotify crying songs yeah. if you want to get the flow of emotions going. <laughs> but I learned this from from one of my mentors, Dr. Gordon Newfeld, who's a developmental psychologist who runs the Newfeld Institute there in Vancouver, and uh, he does the same thing. You know, he's got a, some VHS movies like Old Yeller and that kind of stuff, and and his family will say, "Hey, you know, I think it's time for you," because you know it just it it, it heals the brain. Like it's when when you come up against the futility that you can't control, it actually creates healing in the mm. brain, and and the chemical composition of tears of of joy are completely different than the chemical composition of tears of sadness. Totally. If you, if you look at that show inside out, right, there's a, there's a, there's a scene in that show inside uh, the movie inside out, which is a brilliant movie, by the way, where bing bong loses his toy rocket that he had as a child. And it gets, it gets shoveled over the cliff, like back into the subconscious. And 
uh, Joy comes along and says, hey, you know, let's uh, who's who's ticklish? You know, she, he, she tries to distract him out of it. And then sadness comes along and says, you know, you lost somebody you loved and, and or you lost something you loved. And, you know, there's a lot of sadness that goes with that. And, you know, and then he cries, but he cries candies like he cries Halloween candies. And after he mm-hmm. cries, he says, you know, it's OK, I can go on now. You know, but I think a lot of male mental health would be so much more improved if we could just, you know, you don't have to do it in the supermarket in front of everybody. But if you can realize that it's along with sleep, it's the way that the brain heals itself. Mm, That's so beautiful. And it's completely natural. I'm a a soul sister over here saying the same thing. So I think all men and women, I understand why you're saying the male in particular, because I think it's a lot more acceptable and still open for females to express emotions freely more so than men. So I understand where that's coming from, from your end. I just think in general, I have a saying that even rocks cry. And I find, especially because I feel like a lot of the people who are listening to my podcast are, if you're listening out there more than likely, I know that you are someone that wears the weight of the world on your shoulder. You're a really strong soul and a strong individual. And a lot of times you are that go-to for everyone else in your life. But you need to be able to be human and you need to be able to release your emotions too. And that's why, hence that saying, you know, I I came up with it when I was going through a period in my life where I honestly just was not allowing myself to feel and not release. And I finally got to a point where I had a breakdown and I finally just bawled my eyes out. And I just, I came out, it was almost like source was flowing through me as woo woo as that sounds. And Mm -hmm. that came out of my mouth. I was like, even rocks cry. So this daily habit, you said every two weeks you do this. That's brilliant. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's so smart. And then what does your morning routine look like? I'm a morning routine fanatic. I love studying them. I love uh, creating them. I have my own master morning routine that I continually refine. And I really am curious what your morning routine looks like every day. Usually what I'll do is I'll get up, I'll, I'll, I'll put my hand on my chest for about five minutes just to connect with myself. I'll go pee, like I said. I'll give uh, Buddha some kisses on his snout for about oh, two minutes. He hates it, but I love it. And then I throw my, <laughs> yoga, I throw my yoga mat down if it's not already out, and I, I bend my spine six ways. So I'll stand, I'll go lateral right, lateral left, forward fold, back bend, and then twist. You know? And then I'll do a little bit of yoga, warrior two, warrior one, that kind of stuff, just to stretch out my legs. And, uh, and then I go and do some mirror work where I go and, and uh, address some of the issues from my childhood, where I look right into the mirror and talk to my uh, younger self and uh, just explain to him that, you know, what happened was not your fault and that uh, you're making the best of it and you're changing the world by helping other people. And that's usually, you know, that's usually the start of it too. Like the yoga can last anywhere between like 15 and sometimes I'll go an hour if I'm really, if I'm really feeling it, you know, and it really just gets my mm-hmm. mind and body got back connected. But, you know, I really do have this feeling that uh, I was given a, a ton of pain in my life. And I, I think we talked about this before you and I, you know, the people that mm-hmm. are given a ton of pain in their life um, have been giving it for a reason, you know, they, they know, you know, whatever the consciousness knows we can handle it. And it also knows that eventually we're going to help people with it. And I think that's really what it comes down to for me. And that's what keeps me going. It's just helping other people with it. Because like I said, with my little catchphrase is that I don't want people to have to suffer like I did, because I know the therapies that I went through that didn't work. And uh, I don't want to have, 
that people have to repeat those. I want to give them a completely new perspective that I got from psychedelics mostly, but, but also there's some academic stuff in there too. But it's just like look, just looking at mental health in a very different way from a doctor who suffered from mental health issues most of his life. And, and I'm, you know, I'm, I still have my struggles, but I'm infinitely better than I was. Infinitely better. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, my heart is just smiling right now. <laughs> it's touched because I totally feel you. And I know so many people listening out there feel you as well. Oh, I just such a sense of relief, even just us chatting about it because and I know from someone who has suffered from anxiety for many years, and also things like ADHD, and really extreme highs and lows, the more we talk about it and communicate and speak up and share, that's a therapy in itself. So the fact that you and I are even having this conversation about mental health and not being afraid to open up, this is therapy right now. I mean, I'm just, just so you guys know, listening, this is just my therapy session. This is just Dr. Russ's therapy session. Ditto. Ditto. Oh my goodness, Russ. My my OCD and my ADD kind of cancel each other out. So it works out okay. You, you know, and I so both, my so. dear. You and now, I early both. On in the in the thing you said you wanted to talk about the hypnagogic state. It's such a fertile time. Like when you first get up, it's your, your subconscious is really open at that particular point. So I'm not a huge affirmation guy, but I'm a big feeling guy. So if you can really sort of dry, dredge up some feeling when you first wake up about how much you care for yourself and how much how much you what can I do for myself today? Because so much of it. So and and I was in this for a long time. That's why I was a doctor was so much of it was, how can I give to other people? How can I give to other people? How can Because typically when I was younger, how I got my own needs met was, was fulfilling the needs of my parents. So it's like cutting out the middleman, giving it to myself directly was hugely, hugely powerful. So that hypnagogy state, when you first start to wake up, is really such a fertile ground for sort of getting into that feeling. Affirmations are just words. Unless they have feeling behind them, they don't do much. Now, the other part is when, when you're going to sleep that night, that's a great time to start you know, really having the feeling like what I do sometimes when I'm in a phase where I don't want to go to the gym very much is I really feel like I'm at the gym. I'm loving it there. I'm saying hi to my friends. Like every, and it's amazing how often I just, no matter how tired I am, I just find myself in the car driving to the gym. So those, those two periods of when you're first waking up and when you're first going to sleep, the hypnagogic states are so suggestible. And so that's where you can change your life every day. Mm, that is such a beautiful practice to develop. What self-care and spiritual rituals do you love to practice? You know, I think that the whole thing where I, when I connect with myself every day is kind of a spiritual thing. I have, I have a little um, like mini statue of Jizo, who is kind of like the patron saint of lost children. And I, you know, whenever I travel, whenever I go, whenever I do talks, I always carry Jesus with me. But I don't have, I would say, like a real spiritual practice where I, where I sort of, you know, um, put my, myself, you know, prostrate to a, to a deity of some kind. Although I have Ganesh beside me, I have Lakshmi, I have Shiva, that kind of stuff. I have the little things that I got in India and I look at them every day and I touch them every day, kind of like an OCD kind of thing. Like, okay, what have you got for me today, Shiva? You know, and I, and I do that every day. But as far as really, you know, other than like, like my meditations, uh, which I've fallen off of lately. Thanks for bringing that up. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, but other than that, there's not a whole lot of spiritual stuff. I, you know, I think what I would say is my, my tears are spiritual. I would say that, you know, and that and it's hard for an alpha male like me to kind of admit that. But 
but it's true. And, and it's really, I'm putting my own ego aside here to try and help other men, you know, see that this is, this is something that, that we can do that will help us. And I know there'll be guys like, ah, you're crying, you're a sissy, you know, you're a sissy boy. We don't want no sissy boys. So it's, it's one of these things where if I can get that out there and allow men to kind of, you know, in private or whatever, get it. it it's such a huge healing resource for women and men, but especially for men, like men really, really, really need it. What are you curious about right now? How my book's going to do. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a big one. That's a big one. Uh, I'm really curious about how to keep separating the alarm in my body from the thoughts of my mind, like novel ways of doing it, you know, creating uh, like uh, a practice where I just completely accept because I do feel the alarm that we hold in our body is our younger selves, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I have this little saying too, that any overreaction that we have, like if we freak out about something, any overreaction is an age regression. So if your partner pisses you off and you just freak out and you know that you've lost it, it's like, what, ask yourself, what age am I right now? And what is going on yeah. in my life? You know, so. It's that three-year-old that blank uh, happened to. And that, that's another, that's a whole other podcast too. But what happens if your trauma is pre-verbal, like before like five or seven years old, because we don't have the language before that. See, I'm lucky in a way that most of my trauma occurred when I was like 10, 11, 12, 13. And I had, the, I had language. So I can talk to that part with language. But if you, if your trauma is pre-verbal, you really have, you know, your best ask, best way of going at that is through the body and feeling and then creating yeah. a feeling state. Because my wife's a somatic experiencing practitioner. So, you know, she goes in through the body and I've learned so much from her. So again, I've got this huge wall of science on one side and then this huge wall of kind of like, okay, this is more ethereal kind of stuff. And I try and blend them together. And it's amazing how well they actually do blend together the scientific and the more ethereal when you really look at the truth of what everything is. It is a lovely marriage. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> Russ, what's something you failed at? Oh, what did I fail at? Um, I want to give you a real one here. Cause rather than just, uh, Oh, I've, I've been married twice. You know, I've been married twice. This is my, my, my third marriage, my early marriages. I, I just wasn't emotionally available. Well, I certainly wasn't abusive, but I wasn't like, um, you know, like neglectful or there wasn't anything you could point to. Like people outside of us, as, as you know, who watched both of my marriages as couples would never say, oh, he didn't seem like he was ignoring her or anything like that. But just emotionally, I was deta- I was in something called defensive detachment, which is, you know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you put your hand on a stove when you're younger, your brain says never put your hand on a stove again. And that's good. But if you get burned by love which is a story that I'm going to, yeah, I'm revamping, but with my dad, I loved him so much. And then it was so much pain that came in. What my brain learned was love is not safe for a long time. You know, I would get so far in a relationship and think, Oh no, this isn't safe. And then I would have to pull out. And that's something I really want people out there also to hear straight from you, because, you know, I think from an outside perspective, you've had a really a successful looking life and looking looking yes i know there's always way more than meets the eye not that you haven't been successful you have and that's the thing i think for so many people it's so easy and this this goes for pretty much anyone it's just so easy to be an outsider looking in and say thinking like the grass is greener or you know they have it all made or there's fame or fortune or whatever's attached or title or whatever the case may be here's the thing a lot of times it's those kind of scenarios where i think there's such a golden nugget of wisdom 
in what you just said in that it's not you actually pulled away when you loved someone too much mm-hmm. in a sense psychologically i think a lot of times in relationships especially intimate or romantic relationships people look at someone pulling away as though it's something they're responsible for they're doing or they need to change whereas a lot of times it's it like you said in the beginning of our interview it's a lot of times or more than likely that person themselves has some sort of attachment issue so they're pulling away because they're afraid of how much they're starting to actually be attached to you yeah, that's a brilliant point, man. It's a brilliant point. Yeah, because it's, you know, so much of it, we assume that we are having this influence on this other person and that's, in, that's influencing their behavior. We, it may not be us that's having the influence. It may be their mother or their father that we are, they are perceiving through us, you know, so we don't really yeah. know another person. We just know our perception of them. That's all we know. Mm. So when, when we get, you know, withdrawn or angry or whatever, often it isn't at the other person personally. It's they're doing something that in our childhoods really triggered us. And that's oh, what's coming yes. up. And then we make the mistake that it's them, but it's not them. For one, it's us. And it's us. It's our old wounds that are coming out through them. And in a way, they're giving us an opportunity to heal them. Like when they bring up, when you have the, when you're, when you're a couple and you fight about the exact same thing, it's like, well, where did I have this exact same thing in my childhood? And where can I look at sort of, you know, healing that and then putting my hand on my chest and talking to that part at 12 or whatever that, you know, was, was hurt by someone or something, you know, that's Mm -hmm. where you need to go. It's not, you know, it's not the other person, the other person actually, you know, when you look at it, I'm in this group that says the other person actually really doesn't exist. It's your own perception of them. It's your own perception of what they are doing. But if you look back, we have a little saying called just like when. So if someone says, oh, God, I hate it when my wife organizes everything. It's like, well, just like when. Well, my mother used to organize the play, you know, like plan the fun out of everything. You know, so it, it always goes back if you look for it. And, that, and that's where you could do it. That's brilliant. And I know you, you and I it. keep throwing around the B word because I know we just appreciate what we both are putting out there. But communication, obviously, in general, could alleviate so much heartache and headache. That's something that I always say. But that question alone could, I feel like, resolve so much misunderstanding in intimate relationships alone by just saying, hey, obviously, I've triggered you in some way. I know my action right now has probably in some form occurred in your past. Can you remember a time when that actually happened? Yeah. And this is a classic case of sort of coming back because when you're in it, you know, what happens when you're in it is you go into survival brain. When you go into survival brain, all you see is threat. So you, Mm. you lose your prefrontal cortex, you lose your rational ability. So it's a matter of, you know, when you're calm later on going, you know, that really, it's not personal to you, but I remember when mm. I was younger, you know, my mother would withhold food for me. So when you, you know, gave, gave the, the last pork chop to your son, as opposed to giving it to me, I had this age regression freak out, you know, and then you can kind of, you know, if you track it back to where it comes from, you can actually do something about healing it. Otherwise, couples just recapitulate the same argument over and over and over again. So much wisdom and so much truth in that. <laughs> so we could do a whole podcast. We might have to do a whole podcast on relationships. Here's one. one thing that I'm very curious. Do you, because per- we're talking about perspective, do you yeah. perceive those two marriages as failures today? 
you actually no. look at them as failures or are they something else to you now? No, I, I, I'm, I'm completely fine with, with, uh, I, I'm good. Actually. I, my, my first wife is the, the mother of my daughter who's now pregnant with her second baby. Who's going to be my second grandchild. I can't believe my grandfather, but Hey, whatever. Um, the second one was a lot more tumultuous, but I certainly learned a lot more from, well, in, in different ways. I learned a lot from both of them, but I don't consider them failures. I still love both of the women. I, I still think they're both awesome women. Uh, but I can see now where, you know, the first one was basically someone who I saw as taking care of me because I didn't feel like I got taken care of as a child. And the second one was I felt like I was taking care of her because she didn't get taken care of as a child. And my current relationship with Cynthia, like we have this, this ability, you know, no relationship is perfect, but we have this ability to sort of switch the alpha role. So, so mm. I may need some help and she's alpha and then she may need some help and I'm alpha. So we kind of flip back and forth. It sounds like much more of a partnership. It is. Yeah. Whereas my first two marriages, my first wife was definitely the alpha 90% of the time. And then the second one, I was the alpha 90% of the time. So there wasn't this sort of reciprocal back and forth kind of thing where you can develop some comfort and, and some safety, you know, because you're playing a role when you're, when you're alpha all the time, it's a role and it's a protective role and it's a coping mechanism and it's a neurosis. That's a really beautiful way to sum up what a successful relationship looks like to you. Yeah. It's just trading off alpha. Oh, I love that. That's a beautiful well, that's, nutshell. That's a Newfeld. That's, that's, not, that's not mine. That's Gordon Newfeld. So, but, uh, yes. but I definitely that's, learned That's a, lot a really good it. way to put it, though, for sure. Yeah. It's just that trade-off and that reciprocation of the give and the take. And that's just a myriad of different hats that you yeah. can pass off. I'm, I'm also curious, when it comes to anxiety, it sounds like, obviously, you've gone through and grown through so many personal experiences over your life to get to the solution. So, it's not something that you feel that was obvious to you? No, unless I did LSD, I probably would still be anxious. In fact, I probably would have committed suicide by now because I just, I just didn't see a way out. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd retired as a physician and, and being a physician was a huge part of my identity. You know, so I'd retired as that. So I lost all that, you know, sort of positivity that I would get. And I was just locked in this sort of alarm anxiety cycle where, you know, I get this alarm in my body, which I would get these horrible thoughts. And then the horrible thoughts would make the alarm worse. And that would make the, the thoughts even more alarming. And then I was just caught trapped in this cycle. And it wasn't until I did LSD and to some extent ayahuasca that I saw that I could separate the two. And when I could separate the thoughts of my mind from the alarm in my body, then I, there was actually a way out. Now, it took a while for my body to kind of calm down because it was in this hypervigilant state. But I realized under LSD, it was like, hey, you know, I have control over this. I, I don't have to think. I don't have to believe everything I think. How's that? Mm, that is pure soul nourishment right there. <laughs> Russ, what support or other resources, aside from some of the ones you've mentioned, would you personally recommend for people who are dealing or struggling with anxiety? I would probably say, you know, learn how to breathe. Learn how to breathe properly. For one, because when you're in anxiety, the anxiety will breathe you. It'll breathe for you and it'll make itself worse as opposed to making you better. So learn how to breathe properly and practice that. Don't just uh, don't just use it when you're anxious. You know, learn how to breathe when you're, you know, relaxing, when you're just, you know, on the Internet or whatever. Take five minutes out and breathe. Put your hand on your chest, feel your breath and really savor your breath. Really get into the feeling, really get into the sensation of your life, because sensation is the moment. And anxiety is all about the future. 
anxieties. I'll, I hope this doesn't happen. I hope warnings, what ifs, worst case scenarios. So it's mm-hmm. as many things as you can do to keep yourself in the present as possible. If, you, if you're looking at therapists, I would definitely look at a therapist who practice some sort of somatic experiencing or Hakomi, uh, H-A-K-O-M-I, or somatic experiencing. If you look up Dr. Peter Levine, he's got somatic experiencing. Because I do feel, especially with anxiety, maybe not so much with depression and some of the other you know, mental disorders, uh, but definitely with anxiety, it's just being able to connect with that part of you that was wounded as a child and, and the anxiety gets worse because it's yelling at you to, for attention. You know, if you had a, a child in front of you who is three years old, holding his arms up, you know, crying, would you just say, no, I got to go on the internet right now, or I got to go have a drink right now. Or I, no, you'd pick him up and you'd hold him and you tell him he was okay. And that's what I mean when you find that alarm in your body. And this is one of the things that I, I kind of teach people is where is this alarm in your body? Find it. And then, really pay attention to it because chances are that's the part of you that needs the healing. And you Mm. you don't get that healing by thinking about it. You you get that healing by feeling it. You got to, you got to feel it to heal it basically. Oh, love that. Feel it to heal it. I am going to do quote unquote quickie time with you now. This part of, I don't know what kind of decision you have, but quickie time. Oh, goodness gracious, Russ. Not that kind of quickie time. This kind of quickie time is I'm going to ask you a series of questions. And I just want you to say whatever comes to your mind, short and sweet. If you had to recommend one book that could positively change someone's life, of course, aside from the one that you're currently working on, what book would it be and why? Uh, A New Earth, Eckhart Tolle, because it gives you a perspective of where your pain comes from. What quote do you live by and why that one? You can't think your way out of a feeling problem because I, for many, many years, I tried to think my way out of anxiety and I just made the anxiety worse. And is that your quote or is that somebody else's? Oh, it's not. Uh, no, um, it, I think it is mine. I, don't, I haven't seen it written anywhere else. Yeah. So that's one that you say to yourself constantly. Awesome. Yeah. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Hi, you know, I'm probably an eight. You know, I know how to play. I know, you know, I did the doctor thing for a long time. I was a corporate speaker with National Speakers Bureau. I know how to do the suit corporate thing, you know, but in my own mind, I'm a little, yeah, I'm different. There's no two ways about that. I am definitely, I definitely look at the world differently, but I can play the game and I'm good at it. (laughs) But I I love it. I am different. You wear your weirdo hat proudly. Yep. Well, I, I admit, I admit on a popular podcast that I cry every two weeks. How's that? What else? <laughs> this do you is need? true. <clears throat> this is true. All right, Russ. What are you not very good at? What am I not very good at? I am not very good at seeing things on the floor, according to my wife. Um, oh. I'm not very good at cleaning. I'm not very good at cleaning stuff. I, I'm a bit messy, you know. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So yeah, I can appreciate that. What is your favorite season and why? Uh, definitely summer for sure, just because it's warm and there's lots of things to do. And I feel this sort of heat that I can kind of, you know, just radiate throughout my whole body. Do you have any guilty pleasures? What's a guilty pleasure? I I mean, chocolate. I'd like to come up with something. Like I just said, I was eight out of 10 weird. And like my guilty (laughs) pleasure is chocolate. Yeah, right, buddy. Car screaming, probably. Probably. Car screaming. Car screaming. When I get really frustrated with something and I can't get to my tears, I will go out in the car and just can just start screaming at the top of my lungs. Okay. And that works usually. 
that works. And I recommend it to everybody. I mean, not in a high density, you know, place like Vancouver, but you know, if you're in a kind of a farmer area or whatever, just go and just have at it. I can attest. This is a very beautiful and feel good release. Yeah. A hundred percent. I love it. Car screaming. If you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh man. Uh, I was going to say chocolate. But uh, that doesn't have. You all can the say eight, chocolate. Eight, eight, eight <laughs> yes. I can't have it in the house, though. Like, yeah, I can't go when we go grocery shopping. You know, we go to Whole Foods to eat our dinner, so we get like a thirty-two dollar salad, and then uh, and then we go over to Walmart for uh, uh, thing. And I can't. And my and Sin says, you know, should we get some chocolate? And I'm like, no, we cannot have chocolate in the house because I will freaking eat it. I can't. I, I hear no, you. I, I have I no. I so feel you on that. I can get crab chocolate. I can get crab chocolate like with nuts and it's like milk chocolate with nuts and that kind of stuff. And I can nibble at that, you know. But if you get me like salted caramel chocolate, I will eat two bars of that thing in one sitting. Okay, good to know. If anyone is going to be crossing paths with Russ, yeah. you now know that's, the way that's to the way his to bribe heart. Me. The way to bribe me. <laughs> salted caramel oh. chocolate. <laughs> I love it. What yeah. are you most excited about that's coming up? Probably the book, I think, you know, I'm also writing some pieces for uh, Men's Health, Canadian Men's Health Foundation, um, helping men kind of understand what's going on in their mind. It's the Don't Change Much program. And uh, so I'm writing stuff for them. And you've got a business coach out of um, the States now and just sort of getting a business going about uh, coaching, kind of using my sort of, I hate to use the word psychic, um, like clairvoyant. Intuitive. 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 Yeah, there it is. There it is abilities because I, I can pretty much tell where your childhood trauma is in about four to five minutes and, and tell you what to do about it. So that's my superpower. So I want to turn that into a business and have, and help people. And I'd like to, you know, I'd like to focus on, uh, on doctors actually, because I think doctors need it more than almost anybody else at this point, you know, and then once I get good at it, then I can send it out to the rest of the world. I, I'd love to help doctors that who are burning out because I know why they burn out and it's not about the patients. And I'd like to help them to be able to, to practice medicine in a way that fulfills them at the same time. But I also have this huge desire to help people, just anyone who's suffering with anxiety. My heart goes out to you. I know how painful it is. I've been to the wall with anxiety where I thought, I, you know, I can't keep living like this. So I, you know, I've got a real soft spot for anyone with anxiety. So I have to try and figure out how I can, how I can serve everybody and then, you know, serve people at a different level as well. So I'm, I'll try to figure that out. But I'm excited about the opportunity. Amazing. So you know that this is Pave Your Paradise podcast. And I would love to know what paradise means to you. How would you personally define it? I think it's, it's being just being good with whatever sensation you're in at the moment. I think that's that that would be paradise for me. You know, so often I think we look at, oh, I'll be on this trip or I'll be with this person or whatever. It's just trying trying to just be in that place of acceptance and love for yourself because I didn't have it for so long. Uh, and just being, you know, just there and whatever whatever you're experiencing in the moment is good. And being able to just feel it rather than just, you know, sort of deflect in or detour into thinking and having to kind of explain it or whatever. It's just being okay with whatever feeling that I have. To me, that would be, that would be paradise. Is there anything you wish we had talked about today? No, I think you covered everything, Mandy. I don't know if anybody's been more thorough than you as far as you've got more stuff out of me than I think anybody. You know, <laughs> the tears, and the chocolate, the whole bit. 
Oh, man, I know you in and out, Dr. S. (laughs) Now, how can I and the audience of listeners serve you? How can we help you in the highest way? Go on my website, um, theanxietymd.com. Just look up Google The Anxiety MD. Follow me on Facebook. Follow me on Instagram. You know, the more stuff that I get back from people, the more stuff that I like to produce. And uh, I get little sort of PMs from people all the time saying, you know, I know it doesn't seem like you're, you're doing something, but, you know, I came back the other night and I was really depressed and I was, you know, really considering it wasn't, you know, life wasn't worth living. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but, but uh, read your, your Facebook message on antidepressants and, and it really, I was on the fence and it really helped me clear up what I was thinking and, and the, the resistance that I was having. So just, yeah, the more stuff I kind of get back, the more it feeds me to keep doing this work because it is, it is kind of lonely when you work really hard and you, and you know so much, it sounds very egotistical, but I mean, I don't think that there's anyone in the world who knows as much about understanding the treatment of anxiety from as many perspectives as I do. I really want to be able to help people. Like I said, I keep saying it, not have to suffer like I did. All right, listeners, you've heard it straight from Dr. Anxiety MD himself. Whatever you're dealing with, he wants to hear about it. Do not hesitate. Do not be shy. Send Dr. Russell Kennedy, Mr. Anxiety MD, your biggest pain points because that way he can make and create things that can help you, solutions that can help to heal you in the highest way. And Russ, where is the best place to find you to learn more about you and what you do? Would that be your website? Probably the website. But if you just Google the Anxiety MD, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that'll pop up there and you can just take your pick. The YouTube channel has a lot of information on it that's free. Instagram has a lot of more fun stuff. Um, You know, whatever, whatever you resonate with, just go with that. I can attest to, I've looked at your stuff on a myriad of platforms and it's all very helpful. You know, you really break down some complex topics and some very complicated things and you really have a beautiful way of communicating it in a way that's very easily digestible. So I will say that's definitely worth checking out. Russ, I am so grateful for you sharing your space and time with my audience of Pave Your Paradise listeners today. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, Manny. You're, you're definitely one of my peeps. Like I knew as soon as we had our first little conversation, it's like, this is somebody that I could really sort of open up and chat with. So you're brilliant at what you do. I follow you on Instagram. I, I, you know, I follow you all over. I think you're a real you know, a real shining beacon of just, just sunshine and light. And, but also, you know, there's some, there's a real realness about you that I really, really love. So just keep doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart and feeling at peace right now too. I have to say the exchange of energy here is just so peaceful and positive. Definitely no anxiousness within me right now. <laughs> so thank you for your beautiful energy today you're welcome. as well. Thanks so much for joining me. If there's anyone you know who you think could benefit from hearing today's episode, it would mean the world if you'd share it with them. Love what you heard? Then please subscribe. If you really love what you heard, then please leave a review with your honest and loving thoughts. This podcast wouldn't be possible without your support. If you feel called to, please make contributions to my podcast fund that helps me to keep it going strong, bringing on amazing guests for you, and to continue the ripple effect of spreading goodness in the world. I appreciate you, your time, and your energy, and I love hearing from you. So drop me a line on social media. 
As always, I'm wishing you a positive day and your own piece of paradise. Until next time, sending you love and light and keep shining.